Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Just insane. It's so good. It's the best thing I've ever... I've never heard a noise like that. Hello and welcome to the greatest podcast on earth, Goats, the show where we try to find objective answers to very, 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 very subjective questions. This week, I'm joined as usual by my two good friends, great hosts and great big wrongans. It's Michael and Vinny. How you doing? Doing good, mate. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastically, man. Michael, how you doing? Father's Day, how was it? Father's Day was good because I got two bonsai trees, so I'm back to being the bonsai bay. So I'm very happy. Do you want to tell the story behind the Bonsai Bay? Because the Bonsai Bay story is a little bit tragic. Is it tragic? Yeah, because it didn't turn out to be a bonsai. Oh, yeah. Well, so basically, when I was in school, um, I was giving it the big one in biology that I had this bonsai tree at home. But it was my mum's. I was going to bring it in. And everyone was calling me, oh, Bonsai Bay, Bonsai Bay. is going to bring a bonsai in for the class. I brought it in. I finally, one day, like after months of saying, hyping this up, I finally robbed it and brought it into school. Because my mum was like, no, you're not taking my tree into school. It turned out not to be a bonsai tree at all. It was just a random houseplant that sort of looked like a tree. And um, I got absolutely ridiculed. And um, then bonsai bay, like, properly suck. Well, this is the thing. I thought bonsai means small tree. Like, I didn't realise it was a very specific style of small tree. And not just, like, like, obviously a tree's fucking massive, isn't it? So a tree that's, like, as big as me is a small tree. Do you know what I mean? And this thing was up to my waist. So I thought, oh, that's a small tree. That's a bonsai. Oh, right. You just thought anything smaller than like a big tree. Yeah. So this thing was like up to my waist. So I thought, oh, that's a small tree. That's a bonsai. So I brought it in and everyone laughed. And I was like, we laugh now. It's a bonsai. Apparently not. <laughs> I know. But my, my new bonsais are proper bonsais. Well, that's good news. Now we've dealt with all that, we should probably deal with our housekeeping before we crack on. We've got a couple of new patrons. Big shout out to Tracy and Lucy. Don't know who they are. No relation to me whatsoever. I definitely didn't make them sign up when they were when they were up for the weekend. And um, big up. yeah, big up though, massive help. And uh, hopefully, if you keep pledging to goats, we might be able to sort out Michael's enormous lag. So that'd be great because currently Michael's about, I'd say, solidly four seconds behind. Secondly, I've got a telemate challenge. Um, I think we've got some people listening to the back catalogue. So although we haven't really mentioned the telemate challenge, it's still going, one hundred percent. Just if you don't know what the Telemate Challenge is, if you tell one of your mates about this via some sort of messenger-based app and you screenshot it and send it to us, we'll shout you out on the show. Got one from Shah. 
friend in real life and friend of the show. She said, also, if anyone wants a good podcast to listen to on the drive, my friend Seb started one with his pals and it's actually very funny. Smirking face. So that's the Telemate Challenge. So here we are, 13 episodes in. And we've talked about tragedies, inspirations. We've had open and honest discourse on pornography. And we've talked a lot about wanking. So this week, we've given ourselves a cheeky little treat. No more art and culture for the goats this week. It's time for Lad Chat. It's time for Footy! In celebration, we are all wearing different football shirts. I'm wearing a player issue Dynamo Kia of Yarmolenko. Uh, Vinny, what are you wearing? I'm wearing a Zimbabwe national team shirt from a few years back. Very nice. Michael, what are you wearing? I've got the Barcelona training shirt from a few years back as well, 2018, I think. It's a good shirt. It's a solid shirt. Well, without further ado, let's crack on. The beautiful game holds a place in all of our hearts. And right now, if it wasn't those fucking FIFA scumbags, we should be sitting in a beer garden watching Harry Kane hit Rose Ed against Iran. But we're not. We're here. And instead, we've got to wait till fucking winter. So to quench our thirst for football fun, we're going to crown the GOAT football team. Whether it's the mighty Leicester of 2015, the invincible Arsenal of 2005, or the iconic Real Madrid Galacticos, they've all brought something special to our national pastime. But which did it best? Well, without further ado, let's get into it. You're both huge football fans and more importantly, huge nerds. And I know this is going to be a lot of what I can only imagine will be stats-based football analysis. So let's fucking crack on before we all die. Who wants to go first? I don't mind going first. I can go first. Okay, I'll let you go first, mate. With that in mind, I also want to let you know, Michael, that I'm limiting you to five uses of each of these. You get five of each. You get five uses of the words goal contributions per game. You get you get to say that five times. You also get to say the word or the phrase XG or expected goals. You can't you can't duck and dive between those two. That's the same thing. You get you get five of them. Okay. And to be honest with you, anything in that realm, it's a bit like when the goalie holds the ball for too long. Like they don't get too aggy about it, but if you start taking the piss, I'm gonna start pulling out cards, all right? Right. So just I don't want too many like, oh, he goal contributions per game, he's better than so and so and just come on now. Okay. Let's, let's try try me real. I will listen, I'll do you one better. How about that? I'll do you a second deal. Alright. Are you won't I won't use XG or goal contributions per game or expected assists or anything like that. And I'll do this from like a passion sort of stance. Now, if this was a slightly different topic, if this was, say, greatest player of all time and not team, that would be a different story. I'll be saying XG every other sentence, but we're not. This is about teams. So I'm going to try and put my love for the game to the forefront and my nerdiness and like binary breaking down of the game into ones and zeros to the side. Does that sound like a good deal? I'm not just excited, I'm relieved. Okay, so <laughs> I imagine our listeners who don't necessarily know about us and football <laughs> will probably be quite relieved as well. 
our football Discord channel gets pretty hectic. But anyway, GOAT football team. Now, obviously the GOAT for me as a Liverpool fan is, you know, it's the Reds and it? it's Liverpool as a total club and everything else. But I haven't gone for Liverpool. Wrong. What? You are wrong. That is immediately wrong. What, I said for me. That was subjective, actually. So that's not wrong. Mate, still wrong. Mate. Right. You are you you think wrong. <laughs> and you should feel bad. Right, this is a good start. This is this is this is how it's gonna go in it. Let's be let's be real, right? You we can't have a football episode without a little bit of uh heckling and banter from the stands. Do you know what actually I'm just gonna come in early doors and this is this is this has nothing to do this is just my I like Liverpool, right? But you cannot as a club keep hanging on to this we're the underdogs. We don't spend that much thing. We're not. I don't. I don't believe that. Okay, good because I'm getting a bit tired of listening to like, oh, you know, Man City just buy the league, and it's like, yeah, you did just spend seventy five mil. Well, I don't want to get into it too much either, but Man City have bought the league, but I will caveat this with. Man United have outspent them and they haven't won anything. So although City have spent a fuck ton of money, they've actually spent it well, which is slightly more than other teams. But the GOAT football team. Now, for me, this was quite an obvious answer because it's, like I'm saying with Liverpool, GOAT football team is not just one club, one team, because teams go through lots of different periods. Like, for example, Nottingham Forest won back-to-back European Cups. That's incredible. And now they're in the Championship. Well, they're in the Premier League now. No, they're not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they are. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, they are. But like, that's what I mean. It's like one specific team of players and a group of 11 or 23 players or whatever as the GOAT team for a period of time, who was the best? And I was like, thinking about it, I was like, there's only one real obvious answer of like the best team ever assembled where if you put them up against, if you put those 11 players or 23 players up against any other squad and manager combination in the world ever, who would win? Who do I think would win? Who is the best squad sort of ever assembled? And for me, like I said, it was simple. So simple. There's one answer. And of course, it's Pep Guardiola's Barcelona team from 2009 to 2012. They fucking dominated world football. They won 14 trophies in four years. If you look at football team rankings of who's the best, there's like the number one, two, three, four, always like really far away from each other. Like the Suns list will be completely different from like total football's list or whatever. But this Pep Barcelona team always crops up. It's always on people's minds. And I think they made like a huge impact on football. Lots of breakout stars and they were beautiful to watch. Like if you love football, you love watching this team play. And if you say that you don't, you don't love football because... It is a beautiful team to watch, and everyone's got fond memories of watching this team. Isn't that a Pep Guardiola quote? Like, if you love football, then you love my Barcelona or something. Didn't he say that? I hope so, because it's true. Like, you can't deny it's not true. Like, Tuesday, Wednesday nights on ITV, Champions League nights, back in the day when it was the best, when it was free. Um, just, it doesn't matter who's playing. Like, if this Barcelona team are playing, you're watching it, because it's just sexy. It's just sublime. But how did this team come about? So. Pep came in in the 2008 and 9 season, and for a little bit of backstory, Barcelona had been going through lots of like peaks and troughs, really, of where they were in world football. They won their first European Cup in 1992. Pep Guardiola was a big player in that team. They went so they went for a good period, then they went for a bit of a shit period, then they went for another good period when the likes of Ronaldinho, Deco came in, Frank Rijkaard, Samuel Eto'o. 
but things in 2008 were very much on the down. Players like Ronaldinho and Deco were turning up late to training, not giving their all. Ronaldinho very notoriously was turning up drunk to training and missing sessions and everything else. It was all getting a little bit of slack and it ended up in Frank Rijkaard getting sacked or not renewing his contract. He left at the end of the season anyway. And Barcelona had a big decision to make. They needed to change things up and they wanted to make things for the better. So they had a couple of options in who they were going to employ as the coach for the 2008-09 season. The two standout candidates, on one side, you had Pep Guardiola, who had never managed a first-team squad ever. He was the manager of Barcelona B. He'd gone around various teams in Europe to see how they played. So no experience whatsoever, really, apart from managing like Barcelona's kids and their B-side. On the other hand, you had one Jose Mourinho, the special one who had won the Champions League with Porto, which is a pretty big feat even to this day. He had also gone to Chelsea in England and completely disrupted Man United's and Arsenal's dominance of the league by winning league titles. He completely succeeded in coming in and like sort of smashing down those barriers and proving himself as a really good coach and crowned himself as the special one. So, I mean, obviously, the answer of who you're going to employ is pretty fucking obvious. You go with Pep, obviously. That's what the director and the uh, club president thought anyway, and people were a little bit dubious, to be honest. And really, what this did, other than spark the greatest football team of all time, it also sparked one of the greatest rivalries on time, which we'll come on to a bit later, in Pep versus Jose. So anyway, who's Pep inherited? Well, he wanted to get rid of big players with big egos. Deco, Ronaldinho, they're out. They're gone. Straight away, Ronaldinho is like, you know, one of the greatest players of all time. Ballon d'Or winner. Nope, fuck off. You're out, mate. We don't need that in here. He wanted to also get rid of Samueletto, but... He was their top scorer the season before. He was a little bit like sort of indispensable, so he had to stay with him. But what he did decide to do was quite maverick, quite game-breaking, and quite sort of risky. He decided to promote as much youth from within Barcelona's team. They have a very famous academy, La Masia, where Pep Guardiola was schooled as well. He decided to promote as much youth as possible from that team and into the first team. So players like Sergio Busquets... He came in, this was his first season straight away from the academy, and he wanted to replace loads of guys. He brought Gerard Piquet back from Manchester United, so this was his first season as well at Barcelona. He was also from the academy, and if we go through the whole entire squad, which I'll go over now, I'll tell you how exactly how many academy players were in this team. So Pep's team in 2009 season, in goal, you've got Victor Valdez. La Masia graduate, very good with his feet. At fullback, you've got Danny Alves, who'd only just moved to the club and since has gone on to be one of the greatest right backs of all time, would you say? Best right back ever. Pretty. He's got nothing on Cedric. (laughs) He's got nothing on Trent, that's for sure. And on the left flank, you've got Eric Abidal, who was like super sturdy, super reliable. Then we go into the centre backs, PK and Puyol. Now, Charles Puyol, obviously, he was La Masia as well. PK La Masia. Puyol was like a seasoned vet. But Gerard Piquet was like 21, not had a very good time in England, really poor time actually. Come back to Barcelona on the biggest stage where he sort of grew up and was from La Masia. And this is his first season where he's really got to try and impress. So at this point in time, these guys, although they're massive names, and this is the thing, this is a point I want to try and make is that everyone claims, oh, Pep's a fraud. He's a bold fraud. He's only ever had good teams. Well, 
yes, these players, in hindsight, are like fucking unbelievable. But try and put yourself in the perspective of in their first seasons, we didn't know how good these guys were going to be necessarily. So it was still quite unknown back then, even though they were ridiculous. In the midfield, you got the ultimate trident. You've got Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta. All three of them are from La Masia. Busquets, this is sort of his first run out. Xavi and Iniesta a little bit more seasoned, but still fairly young and still fairly inexperienced. Then the forward line. So you've got the two vets, Thierry Henry, who moved to Barcelona after being dumped out by Barcelona. (laughs) One of the greatest Premier League players and greatest football players of all time. He moved to Barcelona after Arsenal were dumped out of the Champions League by Barcelona. A couple of seasons prior, Barcelona embarrassed Arsenal, I think in the final. And um, yeah, Omri, he moved to the team that was obviously better than his team. I'm going to have to make a counterpoint on that one. It was more so they had to sell all their players to fund the cash cow that became the Emirates Stadium. Yeah, I would also go with that. Well, yeah, I know that, but he would have had his pick of the bunch, but he chose Barca. So you got Omri on the left, through the middle, like I said, you got Samueletto, amazing football player. He's just been caught for tax evasion though, so pay your taxes, Samuel. But fantastic player, seasoned vet. And on the right, you've got a 20-year-old Argentinian kid, a little short fella. He's from La Masia. His name's Lionel Messi. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, I mean, even people who probably aren't that interested in football probably know who Messi is. Oh, yeah. he's de- like, yeah, he- I feel like he's global. Really. Like, everyone knows, second best player in the world, Lionel Messi. He's always going to be, you know, that is his title. You can't take that away from him. Right. I think that's the thing. Like Second best of all time. Second best of all time. And I think if we do a, a show called, like, Soaps, like, second of all time, I think he would be the king of the Soaps, really, wouldn't he? <laughs> right. Like, just, like, almost the best. But, like, who's got more goals kind of thing? Yeah, not quite, you know. He's one of those people who people probably look at him and it's like, he should be the best. Like, he looks like the best. But, like, when you actually look at the stats, like, who's scored the most goals, he's, like, not actually even even close to being the most. And then you're like, oh, I guess he's the second best. But that's also really a big achievement. I, I, you know, you shouldn't take away from that. <laughs> right, Seb, fuck off. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to... Uh, I was just about to talk about how he was young and nobody really knew who he was. I'll explain who he is then. He's the greatest football player of all time. Don't ever, ever say anything other than that. Don't ever go on the contrary of that. Lionel Messi is the greatest football player of all time. However, in 2009, he wasn't. He nearly was, but sort of not. Hang on. No, no, no. What I assume then is what you're going to say is that over the course of his career, he scores the most goals of any forward. No, he hasn't scored the most goals of any forward ever, but that's not the only thing in football. It's the only thing that really matters if you're a forward, doesn't it? Well, I'm right. You told me not to it's mention like, goal contributions, XG, any of this, like dribbles per 90. Don't make me come at you with my stats attack, fam. <laughs> it's like saying Usain Bolt is the fastest man alive. But don't not even compare. A team sport. He actually came second, but he came second a lot. So he's probably the best. No, because scoring is not the only part of football. Like, you have teammates. Other players on your team can score. 
And you can allow them to do that by being a better player than everybody else. You can pass the ball better than anyone else. You can dribble the ball better than anyone else. And actually, if you look at goals per 90, his scoring rate is that superior of his peers. But if they've played more games, they have an opportunity to score more goals. But Lionel Messi's goals per 90 is higher than his peers. All right. So when they all retire... We'll look back, but he's the greatest oh, of yeah, all time. No, I'm, sh- I'm sure he's going to make the most of this latter part of his career where he's doing so well abroad. He's doing really well at PSG. Was it nine goals in six months? God, he's flying. I think he's got the same contributions as Ronaldo this season or a couple short, so not that bad. I'm just going to add one to the counter, by the way. You, you mentioned it was two, goal actually. contributions was per two, 90. Was oh, it two. two? Okay, yeah. we're, we're up at two. You got three know, left, mate. But you... you, you Push the buttons. You made me cross. <laughs> like the people are going to be glad that there's no video for me on this episode because I'm fuming. The hats off. His <laughs> shirts off, mate. We'll get into how Lionel Messi sort of develops through this team into the greatest player of all time. But to bring us back at this point in 2009, he is up there. People are looking at him and going, "This kid is ridiculous. Like he might end up being the greatest player of all time. Like he's sort of that good." So that's the team in 2009. Pep's just taken over. He's got all these guys. He's promoted all this youth. How is he going to play? What is he going to do differently than the coach before him and everybody else around him? Well, he was schooled in La Masia. He played under Johan Cruyff. He decided to develop a philosophy, which I'm not going to delve into too much on the tactics because it's just going to get a bit boring. But he developed a philosophy called take the ball, pass the ball, or Tiki Taka or whatever. If you've seen Spain play where they just pass and pass and pass and pass from a similar time period, it's basically the same thing. It's Pep's school of thinking of take the ball, pass the ball. You want to win the ball as high up the pitch as quickly as possible and then move it through the pitch in the most efficient, best possible way. He had one very specific rule, however, which differentiated this specific team from all of Pep's teams. Because Pep, obviously, he's a manager. He's managed. Manchester City currently, Bayern Munich, Barcelona. He's always had this philosophy of take the ball, pass the ball, and he's incorporated in every single team that he's had. So you're going to ask me, well, what sets the tactics apart in this particular team? One man, Lionel Messi. Now, there's a very interesting documentary called Take the Ball, Pass the Ball, and Pep's number one rule, in fact, sorry, he had two rules. The most important things are, number one, when you receive the ball, pass it to Messi every single time. If you can't do that, it's like, imagine a flowchart. Can I pass to Messi? Yes, pass to Messi every single time. Can I pass to Messi? No, pass to somebody who can pass to Messi. So, Seb, I can't believe I'm fucking saying this. Imagine you're Messi. (laughs) Imagine if you're number two. Yeah, I've got the ball, and in scenario one, you're open, you're close enough to me where I can pass you the ball. As soon as I get the ball, I can see that I'm going to give you the ball instantly in this philosophy. Now let's complicate it and say, I can't quite get the ball to you because there's players in the way or you're too far away. So I look over and I see Vinny is quite close to you and I can get the ball to Vinny. So what I'm going to do instead is I'm going to pass the ball to Vinny. So then you're going to pass it straight to Messi because you're in a better position. It's getting the ball as fast as possible to the feet of your best player on the team or best player ever or best player in the world or whatever, as quickly as possible. And it worked. I've got a question, and I've, this is not, I'm not taking the piss now. What I find difficult about that is that, say I have the ball and I see Messi, right? And I pass the ball to Messi. Is the idea of this philosophy that 
from any position on the pitch, Messi can score. No, so the idea is that from any position on the pitch, Messi knows what to do better than you because he's the best player of all time. So he might receive the ball and instantly give it back to you. But then what do you do? Then you're just stuck in a boot loop. No, because he's not staying still. He's moving. He passes you and you pass back. You'll see him move. What happens if, right, here's my second question. You've got, I'm going to simplify this. You've got PK gets the ball at centre-back. He passes it to Danny Alves, who who can pass to Messi. Yeah. He does an absolute wanger, gets it to Messi's feet. Messi passes to Samueletto, who's in the box in on goal. Samueletto remembers the rule, turns around and passes it straight back to Messi. Right. I see what you're saying. I should have explained another rule then, because Pep's other philosophy was he will get you to the box and then it's up to you to score the goals. Under that rule as well, you always pass the ball to Messi, but in the final third, approaching the goal line, all the rules go out the window. Pep doesn't coach that side of the game. Those players are skilled enough and talented enough to score the goals. It's up to them to be creative at that point. So Messi would pass the ball to Eto and he would go on and score. They would just do whatever they wanted to do. But in the build-up, at any given point on the pitch, you will always pass to Messi. There is a slight limit to that always pass the ball to Messi rule in that if you're in the final third, you can be creative and do whatever you want to do. But the gist of it was basically to get the ball to Messi as quickly as possible because he's the best player, he's the greatest player of all time, and he will know what to do better than you. He will either recycle the ball or he will dribble or he will do whatever he wants, but you need to let him do whatever he wants because that's the best decision. Pep's basically saying the decision he will make is better than the decision you, him, them or me as the coach will make he will make the best possible decision for the team that's the philosophy how did they do like i'm gonna break the seasons down now season one top scorers messi he scored 38 and 51 samuelletto scored 36 and 52 and thierry Henry scored 26 and 42 now messi's goal scoring there 38 and 51 you think well yeah that's better than samuelletto that's pretty good but actually, for Messi's standards, that's pretty shit. That's like one of his lowest scoring campaigns sort of ever. What did they win? They won the treble that season. They were the first Spanish team ever to win the treble. And if you don't know what the treble is, it's the domestic league title, the domestic cup, and the European Cup slash Champions League. They were the first Spanish team to ever win it, and they won it in Pep's first ever season. They walked La Liga. They finished nine points clear. They finished with a plus 70 goal difference. They scored 105 goals and only conceded 35. La Liga being the league that the Spanish teams play in, the top division that the Spanish teams play in. Yeah, so you have Real Madrid in there as well. And funnily enough, they beat Real Madrid 6-2 at the Bernabeu that season, um, which is a... Bernabeu being the Real Madrid uh, home stadium. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're going to have to... Thanks, Vinny. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Not everyone's going to know all these things. I'm just... I know. <laughs> it's difficult for me. I'm so passionate about it. I'm such a fucking nerd that I, I just assume everyone knows. But yeah. So they beat Real Madrid 6-2 in their own ground that year. That's pretty embarrassing. They're like the biggest rivals in football, especially at this time, much more so than now. Like not only would fans of Spain and Spanish football teams watch this game like every time it was on, but fans all across the world, like in America, they would be showing it in England, in every country, they would be showing what's called El Clasico, which is the game between Real Madrid and Barcelona, which they play minimum twice a year. So the biggest, biggest game in 
probably the world, to be honest. It was, well, I wouldn't say anymore, but at this time, 100%, yeah, the biggest domestic football game in the world. Like, probably even maybe more numbers than, like, Champions League finals and things like that. It was, like, ridiculous how big it was. But going on to the Champions League, that's where, like, you know, they won the Spanish Cup as well, which is the domestic trophy. You know, Real Madrid or Barcelona pretty much always win one of those. But in the Champions League, this is where it sort of matters because this is the big trophy known as the Big Ears. It's like the most coveted, best club competition in the world that you can win. It's all the best teams in Europe who finished like first to third or fourth in their respective domestic divisions. They play each other in a tournament throughout the year. The winners crown like the champion. Like I said, Barcelona had only won one at this point. To put that into perspective, at the time, teams like Real Madrid had won nine. AC Milan had won seven, I believe, or six. Liverpool had won five. So these are some pretty big European clubs with some pretty big pedigree. And Barcelona are like at the bottom of that list with one. Nottingham Forest have won more than them at this point in time. So to win the Champions League is a huge deal. They got to the final by beating Bayern Munich 5-1 in the quarterfinals. They then beat Chelsea. Andreas Iniesta scored an absolute banger and it's a bit of an iconic goal. He takes his shirt off and runs around with his little vest on. And then in the final in Rome, they play one Manchester United who they were at the top of the world at this time. So they'd won the Champions League the year before in 2008 and they boasted one of the best club sides ever assembled themselves featuring Cristiano Ronaldo. Don't know if people have heard of him, but at the time he was the current Ballon d'Or winner, best player in the world. Wayne Rooney. Uh, and all the rest of the gang, you know, the Fergie squad, basically, and obviously managed by Sir Alex Ferguson. So how did it go? Barcelona won. They won 2-0. Rio Ferdinand has since said it was the most embarrassing night of his life because of one man, Lionel Messi. He said he couldn't get near him. Usually when he plays a game of football, he likes to do a couple of things. Mainly, he likes to get his hands on people and get a bit rough. He said he literally couldn't even touch Messi or these Barcelona players, they were so small and diminutive and fast with the ball that he just like was swinging at thin air, couldn't get a hold of them. Barcelona win the game 2-0. They win the first ever treble um, in Spanish history, like I said, and they fully announce themselves to the world as a team to not be reckoned with. In the end, in 2009, Pep's team won six trophies, the first ever sextuple, sextuple, what is it? What would it be called? Sextuple? Yeah, sextuple. Sextuple. The first ever sextuple in history, and they won it in their first year. So pretty impressive. 2009-10 was a little bit less exciting. Top scorers, Messi, 47 and 53. They're getting up a little bit. They win La Liga. They get knocked out of the Spanish Cup, and they also lost in the semi-final of the Champions League that year. And they lost to Jose Mourinho's into Milan. So again, another run in with Jose at this point, where Jose's actually had the upper hand on Pep this time. Inter go on to win their own treble that year, which is I don't think that's ever happened where two European clubs have won back to back treble. I know they're different sides, but a European club has won a treble one season and then a different European club has won a treble the next season. I'm pretty sure that's the only time it's ever happened. Going back to that uh 2-0 loss for Man United in Rome against uh, Pep's Barca. Oh, yeah. You might already know this, but do you know who the one player that Alex Ferguson regretted not playing that game was? 
Um, was it Darren Fletcher because he was suspended? No, it wasn't Darren Fletcher. Was no. it Park Ji Sung? It was Ji Sung Park. Yeah, he said that he felt if he'd been put on to Mark Messi, the game would have come off differently. Okay, well, we'll get on to Park Ji Sung when we talk about 2011 then. <laughs> so hold that thought, Seb, because I don't think I don't think Fergie's right. <laughs> I like Park right? I think he's good. I well, but there's a little bit of evidence to suggest that, that might not have happened. Uh, let's talk about 2010-11 season then, Seb. Thanks very much. Top scorers this year, Messi again, 53 and 55. This is where he's starting to churn out the 50s. I think this was his first 50-plus goals, and I think he did eight years in a row, something like that. Pretty ridiculous. So he's starting to run out about a goal a game. Why are you holding up three? <laughs> It's not like goals per 90, mate. Goals per 90. It wasn't goals per 90. That was goals a game. <laughs> That's the same thing, mate. Oh, fuck's sake. Right, three. Two strikes and I'm out. Okay, I, gotta, I can do this. David Villa, he got 23 in 52. And Pedro, again, with a very respectable 22 in 54. I mean, we sort of scoffing at these numbers, 23 and 52 and 22 and 54. But these are what elite players put up now. Like, elite football players will put up 20 goals in a season. Like, Mane's just had a great season. He put up 20-something goals. It's just because they're playing next to Lionel Messi, who puts up 50-odd every single year, that they look poor. But they're not poor. They're elite numbers. If And I know this... I don't want to shit on your parade here. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And I think I might be. Has any player consistently put up... Like, is it because he was in La Liga and goals come more easily there and they have more games per season and they have more club cups in a season? Here's my question. If he came to the Prem, do you think he could have done those numbers? So they play less games in La Liga because they only have one domestic cup. We have two in England. Didn't know that. Because we've got the League Cup and the FA Cup, which is quite annoying, actually. A lot of players, and I'm not a massive fan of the League Cup. I don't know, really. It's a cup competition, I suppose, but it's just more games. They're putting up these big numbers of like appearances, like 55 and whatever in a season, because they're getting to like the finals of the Champions League as well. Okay. That explains the games. Do I think he would have done it in the Prem? I don't know. It's really difficult to tell. It's like, I don't know. It's like an impossible question to ask. I would like to think that he probably would because his record against Premier League sides is like phenomenal. But other players have put up similar numbers in La Liga. Ronaldo was going at the same rate, which just proves that he's elite as well. Like Robert Lewandowski in the last couple of years has gone at a very similar rate. Haaland as well. Haaland, yeah. But I think the thing is, is like, you know, if it was that easy, other players would have done it in La Liga at the same sort of time. Like, there's other insane players that have been through at La Liga and not put up the numbers of Messi and Ronaldo. They just are aliens. They just are on another planet. They do it for every club they play for. Messi's not done it for PSG yet. The semantics of that can be debated for a long time. I think he checked out. I think he's not playing for the bad, so he's, yeah. he doesn't give a shit. He's already done what he had to do. I feel like moving to a completely different club after being somewhere for 20 plus years at like 35, if you're not in it, like he just doesn't really give a fuck. Like what, what, like he didn't want to move either. So maybe that's a part of it, but like he can do it. Like he is an alien and Ronaldo and everyone else as well. Like that's why I think they put up such big numbers. But yeah, so Via comes in, Ibra. Goes out after one year. Why? He fell out with Pep Guardiola. And also Yaya Toure fell out with Pep Guardiola as well, which isn't the first time it's happened because he also fell out with him at Man City when they didn't get him a birthday cake. Oh yeah, I've heard that story. <laughs> what? That story. I've not heard this. It's a true story as well. They were away in um ah, oh, they were away in the summer break, I think, in Qatar or uh Saudi Arabia or somewhere there where their owners are from. 
And they had this big thing. They're having this big party and stuff like that. And Yaya Torre was sort of like in the corner all by himself, like sort of saying nothing, like really quiet. And everyone's like, oh, why is he not getting involved? It transpired that it was his birthday that day and the club didn't wish him happy birthday or buy him a cake or anything. They just sort of forgot. <laughs> and uh, he was very pissed off, apparently. Yeah, if you just Google it, listen to Micah Richards talk about it, who's one of his teammates. It's pretty funny, to be fair. Like, he's on like £150,000 a week. Why does he give a shit about a cake? It's pretty ridiculous. But anyway, so Yaya and Ibra, they fall out with Pep. They also lost Thierry Henry. He moved to the MLS, I believe. So David Villa comes in and Mascherano. So this year was another massive year. They won the La Liga. They also won the Champions League, but they lost the Spanish Cup final 1-0 to Real Madrid that year. So they nearly had their second treble in three years, bar losing one game. It's Jose's first season at Real Madrid. He's come. It's like Voldemort has arrived. Like The rivalry has finally started. It's been boiling and boiling through getting the job over one another, beating him in the semifinals. They're finally here together and the press conferences and everything else was just intense. Like the games ramped up even more. There was even more pressure. It was Pep versus Jose. We all remember it. Jose would be in the media saying shit about Pep and Barcelona very outwardly. Pep's not really like that. So he would have to respond and it was just building and building and building. This was like the first spark of that tinderbox. But the standout performance of the year was when they beat Real Madrid 5-0 at the new Camp, which is Barcelona's stadium, and David Villa scored a hattie. And also, another little spark to the rivalry, during their Champions League campaign, they beat Real Madrid in the semi-finals, and Messi scored maybe my favourite goal of all time. If you have never seen this goal, it's just extraordinary. Type in Messi goal versus Real Madrid 2011. Busquets just he doesn't even pass him the ball. He just sort of like walks away from the ball while Messi runs and picks it up at about the halfway line. None of the Barcelona players then run. They just stand completely still and watch Messi do something, which is bizarre because usually when you watch a game of football, even though the person with the ball's running around, so is the whole other team. They're all running into good positions and stuff so they can get the ball back. But the Barcelona players stop what they're doing completely, almost as if they know what's about to happen. It's really bizarre. And yeah, so Messi just takes the ball off of Busquets he dribbles from about the halfway line past four or five Real Madrid players. These are some of the absolute best players in the world and just slots it in. No problem. Like he's playing in the park against 10-year-olds. It's ridiculous. It's definitely like up there. It's one of the greatest goals of all time. And people generally forget about it. It's a bit weird. But anyway, they get to the final. They beat Real Madrid and they play none other than Manchester United again for the second time in three seasons. And the Manchester United team they're facing is pretty much the same sort of team. Minus Cristiano Ronaldo and one Jisung Park is on the pitch. So, with Sir Alex Ferguson's tactical genius, where he said, as Sebi so rightly put it, if Jisung Park had played and Mark Messi, we would have won that game. Well, they didn't, because Barcelona beat them 3-1 and fucking humiliated them. Lionel Messi dominated that final like I've never seen another player dominate a Champions League final ever before. At Wembley... And if you listen to this thing and you don't know what Wembley is, it's our home stadium. Like, surely we all know fucking Wembley, the big arch. But just in case you don't, Wembley's our stadium in London. That was where the Champions League final was played. And yeah, they really turned the screw this time. Pedro scores in the first half. Rooney levels just before half time, And I imagine Man United fans are thinking, come on, this is us. We know we're coming back. But that was actually their only shot on target out of two shots for Manchester United in that final, which is not great. 
Messi then scores an absolute banger to put them 2-1 up and then fully embarrass the Manchester United defence for like the next 30 minutes to set up David Villa for another screamer to win the match 3-1. Fergie has been stunned twice in the final of the biggest competition in the world by the exact same team in three years. Now, for many people, Sir Alex Ferguson is the greatest manager of all time. I cannot think of another team that has done such dirt to Big Fergie. Like, this is on another level of embarrassment for him, surely. And that's how they rounded off their third season, which brings us into the the final season, the last hurrah of 2011-2012. This is sort of where the fun stops, bar one saving grace, because they lose the league in this season to Real Madrid, who go on to win La Liga with a record 100 points in Jose's second season, which is obviously a huge disappointment. They did win the Spanish Cup. They beat Real Madrid to get there, but like I said, it's not really the big competition you want to win. And they lost in the Champions League as well to a Chelsea team who really, they they went on to win the competition, but they really weren't the best team that year. The only good thing that happened in that loss to Chelsea in that game was the greatest piece of commentary of all time in football ever even more so than the, they think it's all over. It is now the greatest piece of commentary of all time. Vinny knows what I'm talking about is Gary Neville when Torres is through. Ah! <laughs> I can't even do it fucking justice. Seb, just get the <laughs> Just insane. It's so good. It's the best thing I've ever, I've never heard a noise like that. Oh, a human being. <laughs> It is honestly it's... the most dramatic story of the season. It's Torres oh! to give Chelsea a place in the Champions League final. The headline has been written. And that is really that's how their season finishes. Some standout wins. They beat Osasuna eight nil, and they did actually beat Real Madrid four three over both games that year. But the disappointing season, they didn't win anything. Like I said, the only silver lining in that season is uh, none other than Lionel Messi, who had the greatest individual season slash calendar year of any player of all time. And this is objective, not subjective. He scored 73 goals in 60 games in the 2011-12 season, the most by any player ever. He scored 50 league goals in 37 league appearances, the most by any player ever. And in 2012, he broke the world record for most goals in a calendar year, a record which has stood for a very long time, by scoring 91 goals in 69 games, which is a world record which will never, ever be beaten. It's probably the greatest individual feat in football ever. I don't believe that's ever going to be beaten. Isn't it like if you take like like november to november like a calendar year of like just november to november rather than like january to december he had over like 100 goals like 101 102 goals or something like that this is what i mean this is where messi's been building up and building up now he's stamped it he's the best player on the planet at this point he is definitely the best player in the world and he's building a legacy of being the greatest player of all time because I haven't even alluded to the ballon d'or but he won the ballon d'or in every single season under Pep Guardiola, he won four in a row. And it was these four seasons that he won the four in a row. His first one and his, well, his first four. But like I said, this is where the story of this team finishes. After that disappointing season, bar Messi's individual brilliance, no trophies came and Pep was burnt. He was absolutely knackered. He said four years on the Barcelona bench is like spending an eternity there. 
the rivalry with Jose Mourinho was just too intense. It was just too much. It was starting to really get him down. He couldn't deal with the pressure of the media and the press conferences and Jose in his ear all the time. He couldn't hack it. Like he was man enough to admit that he couldn't hack it for any longer. Like he'd done four of the most incredible seasons of all time and he couldn't carry on. So he didn't extend his contract. He quit and uh, he took some time out from the game altogether. I'll summarize. That's it. That's the greatest team of all time. They won 14 trophies in four years, including three league titles in a row and two Champions League. They had a huge impact not only on the viewers, but also on world football. The tiki-taka pass the ball philosophy that Pep fully integrated into Barcelona also rubbed off on the Spanish national team, who went on to win back-to-back Euros, World Cup and Euros, which has never been done ever or since, and probably won't ever happen again. Seven of the starting players in the World Cup final were Barcelona players, and Eric Cantona very famously said in an interview that Barcelona have won the World Cup, not Spain. Regardless of all that, regardless of the goals scored and everything else and whatever, why are they the greatest team of all time? I'll go back to the first point I made about love. Clearly, with this rant, I love football. It is my first love. I'm in love with football. I probably love football more than anything in the entire world. It's my first love. And I'm sorry about that, but it might be true. Okay? Sorry, Leo. Sorry, Jen. Sorry to everybody, but (laughs) football has always been there for me. (laughs) At this period of time in football, Liverpool, my team, who I love watching, obviously, they're, they're my team that I fell in love with football watching. They weren't doing so well. And watching this Barcelona team was like a revelation. They make you fall in love with football all over again. It doesn't matter what's happening. Even just watching the highlights of like some of the goals and the games they played the other night, I like have butterflies. Like the beauty of the game these guys put on, it's just incredible to see. Like it has inspired so many people. Like Lionel Messi would not be the player that he is today without Pep's coaching and without these four years. I don't think we would have had one of the greatest players of all time or, in my opinion, the greatest player of all time. I don't think it would have happened in the way that it did. It just makes you feel incredible to watch this side. And that is the most important thing about football is the feeling it gives you when you watch it. And I can back that up by saying, on a very final note, that I used to watch the Champions League games with my mum on the sofa on a Tuesday and Wednesday night on ITV. And she cannot name you three players that have ever played the game. She can probably name you David Beckham and Wayne Rooney, and that's probably it. She doesn't care about football in the slightest ever at all. And she would be there doing her marking while I'd got the Champions League game on. And it's always Barcelona on there because Liverpool weren't really in the competition at that point. So I'll just be watching Barcelona every week. And every single week, every single game without fail, I would just see those little eyes peep over the top of that paper, that exam paper she was marking, just for a minute or two and just watch. And a little look of, oh yeah, oh that's all right. And every now and again, she'd go to me. I wouldn't even notice this, but every now and again, she'd go to me. Oh, that was a good goal. And I go, oh fucking yeah, it was. Yeah, Messi's just scored an absolute blind. He's just put five past by Leverkusen. That's insane, isn't it? And she'd go, yeah. And if this Barcelona team can make my mum feel like that, they have accomplished being the greatest team of all time and inspiring everybody. If they can get that tiny ounce of appreciation from her no one team that anybody in the world or particularly on this podcast could ever suggest could ever do that Seb just to let you know it's a feat that will never be achieved by anyone else so that's obviously why they're the goat 
I really appreciate it. I appreciate that you've put a little bit of yourself into that. And I appreciate what you said about your mum. Because, like, any time you can get a loved one who doesn't really care about football into football, it means a lot. My only qualm, and obviously I'm yet to hear Vinny's, and I do believe that that Barcelona team, Pep's Barca, is one of the best football teams of all time. I'm not not sure if it's the GOAT just yet. I'm here to, I want to hear Vinny's. My only issue with that Barca team is this. If you are relying on the individual performance of one person to succeed, is that really a team or is that just a unit build? Like team and the term team sort of refers to teamwork. Yeah. And I'm not sure that if Messi was, wasn't in that team, they would have done as well as they did. Okay. And I don't know if that makes them a great team or if it just makes him a great player. Okay, I will respond to that by using the criticism that is often most heavily levelled at Messi to counteract that, in that everybody always criticised Messi for not being the GOAT because they say he's always had the best players around him. Xavi, Iniesta, PK, Puyol. That is probably, other than who's only ever done it in La Liga, that is the second biggest criticism Messi always faces. When being asked, who's the GOAT, Lionel Messi, everyone always says, yeah, but he's always had amazing players around him. Therefore, I think that this is an incredible team because Xavi and Iniesta and PK, individually, without Messi in that side, they are still regarded as some of the greatest central midfielders, defenders, goalkeepers of all time in their respective positions as well for the work that they've done. They don't put the numbers that Messi puts up, but maybe without those guys, Messi doesn't put those numbers up. Like I said, maybe without Pep, Messi doesn't go on to be the GOAT. So it's not like Messi was the best player in the world dominating everybody automatically. It really was a team effort by Pep bringing in these guys from the academy, promoting a style of football that did best suit their best player, but That's how a team often has to work. You have to look at yourself and go, what is our strength as a team? It's working as a team together to get the ball to this guy so that we can get the most out and score the most goals. Well, I appreciate that. I'm not fully convinced that I agree with you, but I do appreciate what you're saying. And I definitely believe that that team is one of the greats. And I I think they could be the great team. Obviously, I haven't heard Vinny's yet. So Vinny really has it all to do here. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I think that that Barcelona team, to be honest with you, is where my head goes when you say the greatest team of all time. So Vinny has a lot to play for here. Can you do it? Can you do it, Vinny? What do you reckon? Yeah. Is the pressure going to get too much of your shit, mate? You're not going to do it. No, no, no. My answer's correct. And I've got good reasons for it. Don't worry. But before we crack on to Vinny's, while we're on football chat, and we can just let it all out, because obviously next week we have to go back to not not just wanking off about football. Yeah. I just want to crown... <laughs> I don't even know if I we even need to discuss this. I know what you're going to say. Worst transfer in history. Yeah. Lukaku. Lukaku to Chelsea, absolutely, yeah. In terms of money spent per goal, how many league goals did he get this year? Nine? No, I think he got less than that. He either got six or eight. Oh, Jesus, for 100 million. Yeah, it's more than 10 million a goal. How many goals did Grealish get? Wasn't it like four? Yeah, but Grealish isn't a striker, so I would I would say that's different. I would say as well... Without meaning to pull a Michael, if you look at Grealish's goal contributions, he's actually done as well as his best season at Aston Villa. Yeah, he's done okay. And also, he wasn't brought in to score like a shitload of goals. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. 
I meant just in terms of goals. Everyone thought Chelsea's going to win the league. Lukaku's going to score 59. They thought, he, they, yeah, he was going to be the top scorer. Yeah, and within two months, he was doing interviews saying, oh, I fucking hate it, Chelsea. I'd rather go back to it publicly. And everyone was like, rah. Disaster <laughs> from start to finish. Could you imagine? Also, so uncalled for. Like, I don't like Chelsea as a club, but, but he was doing all right. And like... Yeah, he was bedding in and then all of a sudden he's just gone, oh, fuck this. I'd rather go back to it. Lol. It was mad. And also... What was really weird about it is that it was quite clear that Thomas Tuchel and Roman Abramovich didn't really want to buy him. But he went on about it so much. I would love Chelsea. I want to go to Chelsea. I want to go to Chelsea. I want to go to Chelsea. And there's a point where if one of the leading goal scorers globally is going on about wanting to come to your club, you eventually just have to go for it. Like if Haaland was going... I really, really want to go to Liverpool. I desperately want to go to Liverpool. Yeah. Even if you couldn't really afford it, and even if he didn't really fit in the team, you'd start looking at the owners thinking, well, go on, man, fucking hell. He's begging yeah, for Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. And that was what he was doing. He was like, I, I love Chelsea. They're my idol team. Like I've always wanted to play them. Gets there. He says he wants to score him after two months. A hundred million. Do I remember reading, I did the stats. I was doing it as a laugh with my dad about how much they paid him. Was that one game, was it against Crystal Palace, where he had eight touches in 90 minutes? I think it was less than that. And um, two of them were the kickoffs. Two, two of them were kickoffs. And they paid him something ridiculous. Like, we're talking For that week, it would have been like 200 grand. He would have been getting paid like 50k a touch. It's the least amount of touches ever in a game in English history. Lukaku's really? Touches. For an outfield player who played a certain amount of minutes, obviously you could say like, oh, this guy came on as a sub. He was like, did one tackle and got sent off. That's like less touches. But for someone who played the amount of games, yeah, that's the least. Yeah, I think it was for a full 90. I think he played the full 90 and he got, I want, I think it, I think you're right. I think it was six touches, two of which were from kickoff. So he got four sort of non-dead ball touches. Okay, yeah. So I, I've got it here. It was seven. So we were, we were sort of both in the middle. Lukaku set a new Premier League record for the fewest touches from a player who played a full 90 minutes since statistics had been recorded. The Belgian international managed only seven touches in a 1-0 victory at Crystal Palace on Saturday, and one of those was from kickoff. So he played 90 minutes and he touched the ball six times on the actual pitch. Uh, do you know what? Like, I actually weirdly get a bit annoyed when people start going about like they're earning this much and the least they can do is blah, blah, blah. But like the majority of players, I genuinely believe now in 2022, I think 10 years ago, we were a bit of a low point where players were getting paid a lot and they weren't necessarily in it, especially when you start looking at like, this one even 10 years ago, but like players like Hazard, when you're thinking like, you really don't care about the game, you're just here for the money. But like, I think in the current Premier League, I would argue most players enjoy and try their best for the money. Yeah. I remember hearing like a Ronaldo interview and like, you know, obviously we joke about, you know, who's the best. Whatever. But Ronaldo's a great player and hearing him talk about the pressure, like he felt like it was his job to score goals. He's getting paid an enormous amount of money. He's a little poor kid from Madeira. He knows how much money that's worth. Yeah. And he sets a value. Like I'm being paid this ludicrously large amount of money. I need to perform for that. Yeah. The way Lukaku has played is actually disgraceful. Yeah. Like, it's really just, I've never seen anything like it. He doesn't even look like he wants the ball. Like, he's not even making decisions based on the fact that he wants goals. Like, sometimes you might get annoyed at forwards for dropping too deep and trying to pick up the ball because they just want to try. 
but he's not even doing that. No, it he's is disgraceful. Awful. It's the exact opposite of when Mario Balotelli was asked why he doesn't celebrate when he scores. He said, does a postman celebrate when he delivers letters? <laughs> exactly. But it's true. It's like, it's your fucking job, mate. Do you know what I mean? But anyway, that's, I've gone on my Lukaku run. He just fucking annoys me. There's something about the money and just not even trying just winds me up. But now that we've spoken about Big Luke's Vinny, an hour and 17 minutes in, it's probably time to hear who you're bringing to the table as the greatest football team of all time. I feel like we're going to be here for a while because I've got a lot to say on this. That worries me because I'm hungry and it's 20 to 10. Yeah, so when poised with the question, who is the greatest football team of all time? I think all three of us went to the exact same place. We all went to Pep's Barcelona. I straight away went to Pep's Barcelona, but I knew Michael would pick Pep's Barcelona. Yeah, well, they are the GOAT. That's the thing. That's when I came to the conclusion that the only reason we all picked that is because that is the best team in the world ever that we've seen play live. Right. We grew up with Pep's Barcelona. We grew up with that being the fucking titans of like what the pinnacle of football is. And so I thought what would be more interesting would be to pick a team I've never really looked into because if I were to pick another team of the modern game, because I, I, I don't really know anything about football pre-2000s, but like post-2000s, I know a shit I was going to say, are you, are you trying to suggest that football was invented before like sort of the Premier League in the year 2000? Are you, is that what you're suggesting? I know, it's, it's shocking. It's, great. it's but, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> football did exist before the Premier League, before Alan Shearer and fucking Wayne Rooney. <laughs> Okay, so obviously my second thought was to go to um, the Invincibles because I'm a big Arsenal fan. And I thought that would be really fun. But in my heart of hearts, comparing the Invincibles to Pep's Barcelona, Pep's Barcelona wins out. They're so close together. Like the game is so similar in terms of like, you know, sports science was at that point, you know, footballing was at that point where you can easily compare them. And I think Pep's Barcelona win. I just, I just believe it in my heart of hearts. So I had to dig very deep and I had to start really thinking and soul searching. And when I started to think about it, it made me realize that the best teams contained the best players of all time. So think Lionel Messi with Pep's Barcelona. Like he was basically the only player you mentioned the entire time. You really think Pele with the Brazilian national team where they won like what back-to-back World Cups in the 50s I want to say and then he won another World Cup with Brazil in the tail end of his career fucking insane and I was going to go with that but then there was another name that really started sticking out as considered as the GOAT player and not just in terms of like the technical ability and the stats and how you would normally compare these players you know Pele scored like three billion goals (laughs) that only three percent of them are actually accounted for but (laughs) but like that's why people say he's the best of all time and diego maradona basically fucking won the world cup on his own (laughs) yeah just by himself like you see the argentina team he played with like they were fucking awful yeah he won the world cup with them also something just going back to what you're saying as well it's like before the premier league i don't know if you've listened to match of the day top 10 the podcast with the match of the day guys i know but listening to gary lineker talk about the quality of pitches pre-premier league is hilarious like he's just and the ball as well like everything studs like the lot like it was so much harder to play is what you're saying isn't it sir and like the things that players like maradona and Pele were doing like the ball control and the sort of silky skills that we've come to like 
I'm not even funny. Most teenagers can pull off a McGeady spin. Do you know what I mean? But back in the day, that was really fucking hard because you had a pair of like size 10 steel toe caps on <laughs> and a ball made out of lead. Like you try and McGeady spin that on a pitch that's <laughs> yeah. like on the slob and it's got fucking massive patches nicking out of it. Like I think something that people don't realise in the advancement of football is not just the advancement of like playing ability and player science, but it's like the quality of football as a sport, like the quality of equipment is just unbelievable. Yeah, so if you were good back then, pulling off ridiculous skills, etc., you must have been phenomenal. So who did you come to then, Vinny? So one name popped up, and it wasn't necessarily because of his achievements or because of his technical skills or stats or anything like that, but of his legacy and what he brought to the game of football and how football has been completely changed forever just because of essentially this one guy and, well, his manager, of course, as well. And that name was Johan Cruyff and his 1970s Ajax team. To put a lot of this stuff into perspective, even though football was huge in the Netherlands in the 1960s, it wasn't really a big thing in terms of there wasn't many professional teams. It was a very relaxed sort of thing. So professional football was actually introduced to the Dutch in 1954. And that is very, very late for European football. Think Sheffield FC were the first ever professional team ever in the world as recognized by FIFA. And that was the late 19th century. That's insane. Yeah, a good 60, 70 years since professional football has been a thing. The Dutch have now finally got their first professional football team. The first division in Dutch football known as the Eredivisie that was created two years after in 1956 so yeah this stuff's like brand new for the Dutch people even though they love football it's just it's seen as a very relaxed thing and no team had this relaxed culture more so in the Eredivisie than Ajax now this time in the mid 60s in the 64-65 season Ajax had barely escaped relegation by just three points At this point in time, they were literally a semi-professional side, which means that's not their day jobs. The players just go there for it. It's kind of a hobby. It's kind of like uh, they all get together with their mates and they play a game of fucking kickball. That's mad. I actually didn't know that they were semi-pro. Yeah, like at this point, they were still semi-professional. They weren't getting paid. I don't know if they must have got paid a little bit, but not nearly enough to like live on. I know a couple semi-professional football players that work for the company I work for. They have a full-time job doing what they do. But on a Saturday, just like, you know, people play on a Saturday, they might get paid like 25 quid to play that game. And that's, that's the extent of it. Semi-professional. They train one night a week, and they get paid 25 quid to play. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah. Ajax were in dire need of something, and that something was a Mr. Renus Mitchells, who was appointed as manager in the 65-66 season. The first thing he did was he changed the culture of the club which was in dire need of changing he introduced stricter training and sometimes even four times a day they would train this is how intense it would get he also changed the formation system to a 4-2-4 that is uh, four defenders two midfielders and four attackers with an emphasis on possession-based football and passing their opponents to death this is also the season where Mr. Johan Cruyff joined the senior squad, having been in the under-18s squad beforehand. So he was a fresh face, I think 18-year-old at the time. Now, 65-66 season ended with Ajax losing just two games and becoming Dutch champions, winning the Eredivisie. This means that they qualified for the European Cup the next season. Okay, this is where it starts getting juicy. But they were semi-professional at this point. I couldn't really find when they officially became professional. But I believe they probably were still semi-professional at this point. Fucking hell. <laughs> that's like, I don't know how to put that into Yeah, that's like your pub team rocking up at the Champions League to play like Manchester United. More or less, yeah. Jesus. Ajax had been in the European Cup before. This wasn't their first rodeo. But both times they'd been in the European Cup, they had busted out in the first round. They couldn't make it to the second round. They lost the first game. They're semi-pro, it's lax, they're just chilled out, they're just doing it for a hobby, they're not putting bread on the table or whatever. But this time, in the 66-67 season, with their third attempt in the European Cup, they beat the Turkish side Beskitas in the first round. Besiktas. Whatever Michael said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be pronouncing a lot of things very wrong, probably, by the way, because there's a lot of... Mine, mine are wrong most of the time as well, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's Besiktas. Besiktas sounds good. Yeah, so they beat Turkish side Besiktas in the first round. So for the first time, they're in the second round and they're the history of their club. Now, Ajax in the second round, Lady Luck's not been nice to them. They're facing English champions, Liverpool FC, the Reds. And the first game they played in their own stadium, the uh, Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam, which is where Ajax are from, by the way, uh, the capital city. This match became known as, right, here we go. Der Mistvedstreid, otherwise known as the fog match, because basically the fans could barely see the game because it was such a dense fog around the whole game. Is there a very famous picture of the goalkeeper 
completely isolated, not able to see any of the players. Probably, I didn't. I I couldn't find. I didn't. I I feel like that's the thing, but I know what you mean. It's like fucking ridiculous. It's a yeah. very dense fog, but the game wasn't legendary because of the fog. It was legendary because of what happened in the game. So it was watched by over fifty five thousand fans at the time, and Ajax took the lead in the third minute. Krauth then made it two nil, and then Dutch, I believe he was Dutch forward Nuninga. I think that's how you pronounce his name, extended it to 3-0 before walking down the tunnel, believing it was half-time. Because it was basically, he couldn't see shit. He heard the whistle, so he thought, ah, it's (laughs) half-time. Then someone basically called him saying, what the hell are you doing? We're still playing. (laughs) He ran back on the pitch, scored another goal, and then it was (laughs) (laughs) half-time. That's ridiculous. Like, you know, like, no, mate, you're you're still on. Oh shit, am I? Oh, bang, bang another one in there before I go. Yeah, I just suppose. just bang another one in, but yeah, just to just try put it to bed. <laughs> so yeah, the final score to the game was five one to Ajax. Fuck me. And this still remains the worst defeat in Liverpool's European history. It's still to this day. Yeah, that might be our biggest loss by scoreline. Anyway, I can't I can't think of another bigger one than that off the top of my head. It completely shocked the world. Dutch teams do not beat English teams, let alone a semi-professional club versus the English champions, Liverpool. And Liverpool manager at the time, Bill Shankly, had this to say, This tie is by no means over yet. We will win easily. We will smash in at least seven goals. This was ridiculous. Ajax played defensive football on their own ground. We never play well against defensive teams. It's probably the funniest quote ever. I think he was in such shock that they somehow managed to lose. And it was just like, nope, didn't happen. We're going to smash them. It was, nope. Because <laughs> they're going to play a second leg, aren't they? This is only the first leg, isn't it? So they got a return fixture back at Anfield in Liverpool to come. So Shankly's like, oh yeah, fuck these lot. We're going to do them 10. <laughs> so yeah, they played the second leg in Liverpool. I assume it's Anfield Stadium at the time. Final score of that was 2 all. Ooh, not quite 7 7-3 on aggregate. They're the ones who smashed seven past them in the end. <laughs> now, unfortunately, in the in the quarterfinals, Ajax lost to Czechoslovakian side Dukla Prague just by 3-2. So, unfortunately, they didn't go any further. But still, for a semi-professional club, you know, for a manager's first season in the European Cup, I think they did pretty well. And, like, people started to, like, think you know people all around europe and the world start to think ajax like who is this team ajax the dutch league like what are they up to like is this the next league that's going to become huge what are they up to what, what are they playing at those ganged smoking weirdos <laughs> so despite losing the quarterfinals ajax was still crowned the dutch champions that year and even won their domestic knockout cup the dutch cup so next season 67 68 season Ajax win yet third Eredivisie title, making them back-to-back-to-back Dutch champions. But rivals Feyenoord start to catch up with the Amsterdam team. I think they won by seven points over Feyenoord in the league, which at the time, wins were two points in the league, funnily enough. So that's actually like a bigger gap than you'd expect. So they crushed them, but Feyenoord are starting to catch up. In the European Cup, however, this season, Ajax just about lose to European and Spanish giants Real Madrid in the first round 3-2. So I think, again, they got a bit unlucky with the first draw. So the 68-69 season, this is where Ajax's legacy started to take hold. 
Johan Krauf, their star player, I think he's like 20, 21 at this time, and he's really emerging as like a, an incredible wonder kid. And he plays as a center forward, technically, like on the paper, on the lineup, he's put as like the striker at the top, the center forward. But he didn't like being kicked about by six foot tall brick shithouse defenders. So <laughs> he would often wander down into midfield and sometimes even deeper into defense because he just didn't like being kicked. So he would rather just like stay around in midfield, help out in midfield, overload and all that, or like even help out in defense. This gave the manager, Mitchells, an idea. Total football. Okay, this is where I'm going to get into uh, tactics. So This is the nerd shit. Let's go. Please don't yell at me, Sevek. <laughs> I'm not. No, do you know what? I'm actually excited because you hear the term total football a lot. And I think most people will say, oh, it's like total football. And then you'll say, what's total football? And they're like, just being really good at it. So, like, I'm excited to hear what total football actually is. So... The idea of total football, to break it down concisely, is the idea that you field a team of 11 players, 10 outfield players, and every single one of those players can play at any part of the pitch. So the idea of total football is defenders, if they see an opportunity to like, if there's space in front of them, they can now, like a centre back can just run forward. And because that, one of the midfielders can maybe drop back and help out in defense so that there isn't now a fuck-off gap behind the defender. If if he gets tackled or the ball loses possession, they're fucked, basically. Basically, to make total football work, you have to field players who are all really technically gifted so you can play in like multiple positions and multiple roles around the field, both in defense and up front and in the midfield. Their passing game has to be up. You know, everything has to be on point, essentially, as well as their fitness, because they're running so much back and forward. But they also have to be tactically astute enough to know when they can go forward or when they should drop back. Total football wasn't really a new thing at this point. Teams had been using it kind of in and out beforehand and really famously in Hungary's 1950s squad called the Golden Team they used it a lot funnily enough actually in this research I found out that Burnley were also the first English team to ever use total football funnily enough that's quite funny because Burnley very famously in the modern age is just fucking lump it to the forwards (laughs) yeah yeah right they've like lost total football yeah exactly they forgot total football at this point in the game, like in football, it was very much just like, you know, the English game is very 4-4-2. You know, it was basically route one football, fucking kick the ball up to the striker. Hopefully he gets in the end of it and he scores a goal. That was like the aim of the game for a lot of teams. And it was very much like, if you're in defense, you stay in defense. You better be in earshot of your goalkeeper if you know what's fucking good for you. Or else you're going to get like ripped to shreds. If you're in <laughs> midfield, stay in midfield. You don't go up front. You you help bridge the gap between defense and up forward. If you're up front, you're fucking staying up there. You're scoring goals. That's your job. <laughs> so it's very extremely rigid. But total football completely just throws that in the bin and just says, right, you're a striker. That doesn't mean you stay up forward. You can go back down. And also in this... Hungary team, the golden team, they even made use of the first ever what's now known as the false nine position, which funnily enough is where Lionel Messi was famously deployed in Pep's Barcelona squad. It's getting very uh, in-depth. The false nine position is where... So the striker is often like the focal point of the team where he scores the goals. He's as forward as possible. He's the person you put the ball to if you want to score. 
but the false nine position is where the striker drops back and helps out in midfield. Now, the reason why the false nine position is so like it just completely took the world by storm is because defenders don't know how the fuck they're supposed to mark this this false nine striker. If the false nine striker drops into midfield, do the defenders a rush to meet him and try to take the ball off him? But that now leaves a big area behind them where another, like a winger or another midfielder can run in behind that and then the ball could pass to them and then they're fucked, basically. Or B, do they stay where they're put, stay in their rigid defensive line and just allow that false nine striker to take the ball? And now that false nine striker has the ball in their third and now he has a chance to then like make some move to then score a goal or like pass to someone who could score a goal. Basically, it's very, very hard to mark. And it's a very difficult position to play. You have to be very technically gifted. But basically, Johan Cruyff was deployed in this position, as well as the whole total football thing started to come through fruition for Ajax. So would you say Harry Kane is like, right now, he's a, he's a false nine? He plays... He's not a false nine. But he drops deep. He does drop deep, but the false nine position at the moment is sort of like being lost because... In modern football, everybody drops deep so much and covers like a huge portion of the defensive like responsibilities. But I wouldn't say Harry Kane is a false nine specifically because he still like can operate like as a bit of a target man. You can like whip crosses into him and get it on his bunts like Fringham would do it all the time. Like I wouldn't say he was a false nine. He's just a modern forward who can do a little bit of everything, but like a pure false nine is someone who's like they're only ever in the box when they like dribble it into the box or, or want to score from that position. Bobby Firmino is a false nine. He's a false nine because he's very rarely just in the box waiting to get the ball, like sort of sitting there waiting for someone to cross it. He into often it. drops back into like a centre attacking midfielder sort of role. And then he's the one laying off to Sadio Mane on the left or Salah on the right. They're called what inside wingers or inverted wingers? Inverted wingers. We fucking everyone's obsessed with nowadays. Everyone has inverted wingers nowadays. Even Bobby like isn't like the perfect false nine like Cruyff and like Messi and people like that because they will just like wander wherever, be really deep, and very rarely like just sit in the box waiting for the ball. They're trying to make things happen outside of the box to like draw defenders in to create space for other players which then creates space for themselves as well. When you say wandering about, that makes me think of Matt Letizier. Would you say Matt Letizier and the way he just sort of drifted around would make him a false nine? Um, I think he had elements of that to his game, but I think he played like a front two. Do you know what I mean? So like one of them would like counteract with the other one. I don't get it. I'm just saying <laughs> that now. I don't fucking get it. It's another one of those things like total football where people say it and they're like, oh, I'm playing as an inverted winger false nine total football today. And everyone goes, oh, yeah, mate. Yeah. Classic. I imagine some of our listeners really feeling the same. Just cause We're just fucking massive nerds, all right? It's just, you just got to accept it. I'm trying to explain it, but I know it's difficult it's hard. if you don't follow football a lot, especially. The new thing that people say to you that isn't I play as an inverted winger or I play as a false nine when you're playing five-a-side is, come on, guys, don't forget to press. High press, boys. Yeah, keep pressing. Yeah. Fuck yep. off. Okay, so... Do you not know I what that is? That. Yeah. Yeah, of course I know what pressing is. Oh, it's right. knackering. Oh, right, yeah, but... I'm only there. It's fucking five-a-side. I've just ridden back from work. You're telling me to press more? Oh, God. You don't want to play with me on a Thursday then because I'm fucking screaming. <laughs> I'm screaming about the press. <laughs> it's so annoying. I don't care. 
Yes, I'm sure if we all ran full belt, we'd score a couple more games. No, but there's times to press and when not to press. And I'm also screaming, don't press if it's not the correct oh, time. Oh, people like you make me sick. <laughs> what position do you play as? Do you play as an inverted winger by any chance? No, well, it's, it's not. We don't play 11 aside. I'd play wherever I want, really. Like a false nine. Prick. Anyway, <laughs> carry on, Vinny. So... <laughs> So another tactic that Mitchells was deploying in his Ajax team at this time was the idea of aggressive pressing football, what later became the Gengen press or Jürgen press, if you're that new or whatever. So obviously the idea of pressing football is just if the defender has the ball and he's just got the ball, the best thing to do is for like you and your mates, your fucking attacking mates to just fucking run at him and try to get the ball off him. As soon as he's got the ball, like just try and tackle him basically. You have to be very well organized or else it just falls to shit. So they deployed this high attacking, pressing football as well. And not only that, but they also implemented a high defensive line where their defense would just stay up even like as high as the halfway line. And they were one of the first teams to ever use what's called the offside trap, where I can't be bothered to try and explain the offside rule to, to, to listeners because I don't have two salt shakers with me and it's impossible to explain it without or two, salt two, a couple of beer mats and a few pints yeah I think basically that's all the tactical speak I've had for today and just basically a lot of stuff a lot a lot of like very but modern you're going stuff. into it because they invented all that stuff which is now being used today like 50 60 years later you're making my point for me thank you Michael sorry <laughs> sorry edit me you you make your point I'm glad you're making my point because you're just fortifying that this is the best side in football oh, history. Fuck, but anyway, you played me. <laughs> You've used his nerdiness against him. The moment I heard Gengen press, I saw I I don't even have Michael on count, <laughs> but I felt his little eyes light up, and he went, "That's what Jurgen does." That's <laughs> yeah, what you about that. So anyway, back to Ajax's European Cup dreams. Now, this season, they made it to the quarterfinals after crushing both their opponents nine goals to only concede one in the previous two rounds. And in the quarterfinals, they face a very strong Benfica side. And this is when Benfica were fucking giants in Europe. Not like now, where they just have a few really good young players who get pinched by Bayern Munich or Man City. This is a very good Portuguese side they're playing, Benfica side that Ajax are playing. And on aggregate, they make it four all. It goes to extra time. They somehow score three goals in extra time to make it seven four to Ajax. Jesus. I don't know how the fuck that happened. Damn. <laughs> but yeah, so goal fest, they fuck them up big time. Now in the semifinals, they're against Spartag Trnava. Can't help with that one. And <laughs> they win three two against them to make it to the finals where they face AC Milan who again are just absolute giants. They might have even been Italian champions at this point. And AC Milan in this whole European Cup competition this season, they only conceded one goal the entire competition. So they're a big boy. Despite Ajax adding to that tally, making them concede two goals the competition, they unfortunately lose the finals 4-1. But even though they bust her out in the finals, that Ajax team really caught the hearts and imagination of the European and especially the Dutch people who start to think Dutch football is the next thing. Ajax are the next thing. They're going to come back. So that season, unfortunately, Ajax's rivals, Feyenoord, they win 
the Eredivisie, this means that Ajax don't actually qualify for European football next season because only one Dutch team could get into the European Cup. Jesus! Yeah, even though they went on such a great run, they weren't allowed to be in the next Cup. So the next season, the 68-69 season, Ajax don't have European football. So instead, they focus their efforts on the domestic league and they win the Eredivisie, only losing one game the entire season and finishing the season with an Eredivisie record high of 60 points. Which again, when you're only getting two points per win and there's only like 34 games to play, that's quite a lot of points. So the next season, the 70-71 season. Now this Sorry, is when I didn't interrupt with the... Um, so I know you're getting to flow there. I heard about the, uh, the 69 season. That's when they got really good at giving and receiving the ball. I'm going to edit in a cough there. <laughs> so said in this one. <laughs> oh, no. Anyway, the 70-71 season, the next season, this is when Ajax start to really start to fucking cook. Their game is at basically at their peak at this point, And Johan Cruyff is the superstar that every Dutch little boy has always dreamed him to be. The dog's bollocks. So in the European Cup, Feyenoord bottle it. First round to Romanian team UTA Arad. But Ajax, they go on a fucking tear of the European Cup. They beat Swiss champions Basel 5-1 in the second round. Quarterfinals, they beat Scottish champions Celtic 3-1. Semis, they sweep aside Atletico Madrid 3-1, who weren't Spanish champions, by the way. And then in the final, they meet Panathinaikos, and they were the Greek champions that year. And this time, they don't bottle it. They beat them 2-0. And Johan Cruyff was named European Footballer of the Year. So this was the first time Ajax won the European Cup. And I just realized I missed out a very important line. But last season, Feyenoord actually won the European Cup and became the first Dutch team to win the European Cup. So Ajax, on the season they weren't allowed in the European Cup, their rivals Feyenoord actually won the whole thing. So now Ajax are the second Dutch team to win the European Cup, unfortunately to them. Oh, that's such a bummer. Yeah, I know, right? So Mitchells decides to step down as manager, believing he's achieved everything that he could in the game. Oh, how wrong he was. He's now appointed as the Barcelona manager and a man by the name of Stefan Kovacs becomes the new Ajax manager. Stefan Kovacs is a lot less strict. He's more easygoing than Mitchell's. He's complete opposite personality. But despite this, he keeps the total football philosophy that Mitchell's built with the team. And in the 71-72 season, back in the European Cup, Ajax beat Arsenal and Benfica to make it to the final. And they beat Inter Milan 2-0, Krauss scoring both goals and securing joint golden boot. Ajax also won the Eredivisie and Dutch Cup, securing the first ever Dutch treble. And Ajax kept a perfect home record that entire season, winning every single home game. Jesus. Yeah, I know, right? Krauf is also awarded Golden Boot with 25 goals in the Eredivisie. Now, the 72-73 season... 25, is that all? Fuck off. 72-73 season. (laughs) Back to the European Cup. In the second round, Bayern Munich, they beat Cyprus team Omania... 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 13 nil to reach the quarterfinals where they face Ajax 
where Ajax smashed them 5-2 over the two games. And in the semi-finals, Ajax meet Real Madrid, where they comfortably win 3-1 to reach the finals for a third time in a row, where they play Juventus. Now, I think it's like a second minute of the game or third minute of the game header, which essentially secures the whole game. They win 1-0 by playing. They basically score the goal and they set up shop. They do a Mourinho into the treble season where they park the bus. Yes, thank you. Play ultra defensively. And despite a few scares where Juve hit the woodwork a couple times, they did clinch it out and they won 1-0 to a stadium of 90,000 fans. Now this is them, three back-to-back European champions, Ajax. Absolutely insane. Ajax also win the Eredivisie this season, keeping their home record the same, where they won every single home game. And now over the previous two seasons, maybe two and a half seasons, Ajax home record has not just been 46 unbeaten games in a row, it's been 46 wins in a row. Jesus Christ. This is how much they fucking dominated. And this is the time when Feyenoord were like almost toe-to-toe with Ajax. They were almost keeping up with them. But... All things have to come to an end, and this would be the last season. Johan Cruyff, the Wonder Boy, who's played for Ajax for 15 years at this point, he would move to Barcelona for a record fee of £900,000, and he would reunite with his old manager, Mitchells. After this whole Ajax team, the Dutch-born core of the team lived on in the Holland national team, who made it to the 1974 World Cup final losing 2-1 to arguably the greatest German side ever, whose talisman striker, Gerd Müller, has the third most goals scored in the World Cup's history. So they lost a good team, basically. They lost a pretty good team. Yeah. Gerd Müller also, he did hold the record for most goals in a calendar year until Lionel Messi smashed it. Thank you, Michael. <laughs> oh, I can just feel myself losing. <laughs> <laughs> but the Dutch had... Another chance in 1978 where they made it to yet another World Cup final. But unfortunately, without their star player, Johan Cruyff, who retired from international football the year previous, they ended up losing 3-1 to Argentina. It's widely regarded amongst pretty much all football fans that that 1970s Netherlands national team were by far the greatest side to never win a trophy. A tradition that carries on today where they have still yet to win any silverware, despite being a very good international squad. So basically, Ajax domestically inspired the national team, but not quite enough to make the national team win any trophies. But Pep's Barcelona team inspired one of the greatest, sorry, the greatest international feat of trophies of all time, Spain winning back-to-back Euro World Cup Euros. That is the point you're making is that that's clear right that's just objective yeah i think the spirit of that dutch side lives through in that the spirit of that spanish side but that spanish side is the greatest international team of all time do you reckon winning back to back to back international tournaments never been done before national side maybe oh i don't know that brazil side from the 50s the brazil side from the 50s they're probably the two standouts and you know the spanish team was inspired by somebody very heavily like like well, Eric this is the thing. Said, Spain didn't win the World Cup. Perhaps Barcelona did. This is the thing which I'm going to get onto. Okay, but to summarize Ajax's 65 to 73 tenure, not only did they dominate their own domestic league, 
winning four Dutch Cups, six Eredivisie trophies, made more impressive due to their rivals Feyenoord experiencing their best footballing years in their entire club's lifespan. But they also won three back-to-back-to-back European Cup trophies. But the greatest legacy that that Dutch side gave to the world of football was the perfection of tactics now used by all elite sides in the postmodern football game. Tactics such as high aggressive pressing, which later became known as Gengen pressing, a high defensive line, the offside trap, the false nine position, and of course, total football are now all extremely commonplace in the best teams around Europe. Modern football has 70s Ajax to thank for all the achievements made by them. And I just think the fact that they did all of those really experimental things at the time, they did it so right the first time round and took so many chances. And the only thing that differentiates Pep Guardiola's Man City nowadays to Johan Cruyff's Ajax from back in the 70s is the fact that Pep also introduced the idea of the goalkeeper playing as a kind of fifth defender. And that's pretty much it. The fact that they just hit the nail on the head and just fucking birthed all these modern tactics that everyone still uses to this day. I mean, Liverpool use all these as well. Man City obviously used all of these. Pep's Barcelona used all of these. In fact, the tie-in between Ajax and Barcelona is so great because when Johan Cruyff went to Barcelona, he had a lot of success there. He retired, became a manager, where he started managing Barcelona. And one of his players, Pep Guardiola, this is where he taught Pep Guardiola the ideas of total football and the aggressive passing style that Ajax were known for. And Johan Cruyff then handed the torch to Pep Guardiola, who then retired, became a manager, came back to Barcelona. And there you have Michael's story. So I think without Johan Cruyff's Ajax and Dutch side from the 1960s and 70s, you wouldn't have Pep Guardiola's side from 2008 to 2012. I rest my case. So I guess then what, what Seb's got to try and decide is Ajax birthed this way of thinking. And perfected it right off the bat. They and didn't perfected just it like, right off the bat. That yeah. is undeniable. But he's got to make a decision on basically who did do it best. Well, the thing is, is you're saying I have to make a decision on who did it best. But I could just make a decision on who I think invented modern football. Couldn't I? No, because it's the greatest football team of all time. And let's say you put them both together on a pitch on the opposite that, end okay, of okay. each other. Okay, okay. That is a terrible way of thinking. Because you have to, <laughs> no, no, no. You have to think of the context of when they were. Because nowadays we have sports science. Everyone's fucking 10 foot tall and they're fucking hulking masses because they know what nutrients to put in their body. They know what exercises to do to get less injured. Not so, Pepsi They were like an average height of about five foot eight, I think. Right. Let me just... I just want to try and win. Yeah, clearly. Fucking hell. You've made that very clear. Here's the deal. I think it's more of a toss up than I think Michael thinks it is in my head. Although I also have to say that your bickering isn't making it more in your favour. <laughs> we got to, though. It's football. What are we going to do? The thing is, for me, is what makes a great, in the term of like, what makes a great thing? Is it the impact they have or is it their individual performance? In terms of individual performance, I think I would be a moron to say that anyone but perhaps Barcelona could get that crowd. I would say the only other teams that come close would be 
Ferguson's Manchester United in terms of like just dominance over the game, like in terms of wins and individual ability combined with team play. I, I think that Pep's Barca are fairly unique. I think that one of the biggest mysteries in football right now is how that same situation doesn't seem to be happening at Man City as much as it probably should be in the sense of their Because he doesn't have Lionel Messi. Well, yeah, and he doesn't have their European success. I think that is like a mystery. I do genuinely, it sounds ridiculous, and this is going on a bit of a tangent, but I think Man City underperform. I agree. In Europe. In Europe, they underperform, especially considering the money they spend and everything else. Absolutely. I think the fact that Liverpool can get so close is a huge testament to how well Liverpool have run, but also like how, yes, there is room that City do underperform slightly from time to time. Oh, 100%. But back to what I'm saying is, I think it's that comes to that decision of like, what makes someone the GOAT? What makes a team the GOAT? What makes something the GOAT? Like, for instance, if we were going for GOAT skateboarder, I don't think that Tony Hawk or Rodney Mullen are the greatest skateboarders that have ever lived in terms of technical ability. But in terms of what they've done for the sport, their impact has a lot of value. And the same now goes for this football debate. Pep's Barcelona, I think, are technically the greatest football team of all time in terms of technically what they've achieved. And they probably are the pinnacle of what football can be. I think that Johan Cruyff and that Ajax team were the birth of modern football. And I think that the majority of what we see and enjoy now as football and as football fans comes from that team. Like what they created, the legacy they've left, is the football that we now love and enjoy. And Pep's Barcelona is a part of that. However, I now need to come to a decision. And I think I might surprise you. And I'm surprising myself, actually. But just then, as I verbalised my thoughts, I came to a conclusion that Mitchell's and Johan Cruyff's Ajax have had the greatest impact on football. But I think that Pep Guardiola's Barcelona and that group of players are the pinnacle of what a football team can be. And I think actually when you look at a team like Man City, who should be that and aren't, it just makes that achievement more understandable. So against what I want to say, because I'm a man of culture and I like the idea that we crown some team that no one's ever really heard of as the greatest football team of all time, in my heart, I think the greatest football team of all time is Pep Guardiola's Barcelona. Fair enough. It was a very uphill battle. I'm not going to lie. Pets Barcelona is, I would definitely go for them. I think in terms of football legacy, I, I would say Johan Cruyff and that Ajax team are hands down. But I Technically, they were more successful in Europe as well. They they were. They got three European cups. The thing is, it's all context, isn't it? Because it might be a, you know, a, a less competitive era and stuff like that. It's really, really hard to like compare teams on trophy halls from like 50 years prior. I think that's really difficult. I didn't know this, but for the first five years of the whole European Cups like history, I think the, like fifty four, whenever it came out in Real Madrid, won the first five. It's ridiculous. Like 
what the fuck? They said they've got nine. They've only actually really got four. Well, they've got 14 now or whatever it is, but oh, really Jesus. they've only got nine. But then it's really hard to like quantify those things. That was a real tough one for me. And I think it, it really proved that point of like what we try and do here is get subjective answers, no, objective answers to like really subjective questions. Because I think that you guys really successfully picked two teams that are unbelievably linked. Like when you look at Pep, he talks about the Cruyffian Academy and like the impact that Cruyff had on him. But I think that what Pep did was took what Cruyff did at Ajax and just put the cherry on top. And I think if you give Ajax the respect they deserve by saying that they invented the greatest way of playing, you then have to give Pep and that Barcelona team the credit by saying they then perfected that. I think what it comes down to at the end of the day is if you were to put the Barca players underneath those tactics in the 70s, that would probably be the best. Those players had that insane athletic ability and technical ability and smarts to pull it off and like position by position those are like regardless of the tactics like if you just had to pick a dream squad i bet there's a at least three maybe four of those barcelona players in there yeah i'd probably pick the just the entire like middle three the midfield three is javi uh iniesta and sergio busquets and then messi obviously in 10 also, what I would say that is unique about that team, and I think it's one of those things that makes me think they're the GOAT, is that I don't think it will necessarily ever be recreated because I, this might be controversial, I think Pep got quite lucky in being able to say, I'm going to pull for my youth team and look at what he pulled. Oh, absolutely. And obviously, you can say that, you know, Barcelona have an incredible youth academy, blah, blah, blah. But I know a lot of teams that have an incredible youth academy, but that couldn't just completely reset their team from their youth academy and get probably the greatest player of that position in every position. Or someone who could be argued for it. Like I'm not going to say PK is the greatest centre-back, but he's up there. He's in every conversation. Danny Alves in every conversation. That midfield three in every conversation. There is luck involved there. He won the lottery. He pulled the right raffle ticket for every single player in that position. And that in itself has to be appreciated. Yeah, you will always get luck with greatness. I think, yeah, it this was really hard. Like to just like on buzzing that perhaps Barcelona won because I championed them. But if I was sat where you are, Seb, and had to listen to both those two pictures, I'd be fucking well torn as a football fan. I think that's how close it is because when you love football and you hear like, about the team that birthed the thing that you love so much. Like, they're like the father, and it's really hard not to love the son that they brought to you that you love so much. But then when that son grows up and does it all over again, like, again, it's like you fucking love them just as much as well. Like, do you know what I mean? I don't know if that's a bit of a strange analogy, but... No, no, and I think as well, it's a sign of how much we really like football, that this is probably the most deep and emotional we've got on any episode, and it's about fucking football teams. It's absolutely atrocious. It's embarrassing. But on that note, we're two hours and 17 minutes in of this part of the recording. I just want to say, from my perspective, massive credit to Michael and Vinny, who have just given an absolute blast of two really interesting topics and of like, I feel more informed about football now than I was at the start of this. And both of yours accidentally, or maybe not accidentally, 
linked in together perfectly and we got like a reverse history of football perfection and also we had a massive fuck about getting to this point and credit for you both of you for like pushing along and giving a really good episode because I was knackered before we started and it's now 20 to 11 on a Wednesday and I think we've just done a slamming episode yeah so thanks to you guys I'm not going to drag out anymore obviously Thank you again, Tracy and Lucy, for becoming patrons. We really appreciate it. We've also started to get a little bit of traction, like genuine traction. Like we've made some videos that are getting quite a lot of views and some of the episodes have now started to hit the hundreds in terms of listens across the board. So that's really exciting. I think we've quite substantially passed the 2,000 listens across the board mark now, which is kind of mental. Yeah. So thank you all so much for listening. Check out the Patreon if you want to support the show. Tell your mates. And we will be back next week for something completely different. I believe me and Vinny are talking about the greatest movie monsters. So as you can see, it's very much one end of the spectrum to the other. Does anyone else have anything else to say before we wrap up and we can all go and eat something? I can't wait to do Epstein versus Weinstein. <laughs> next, uh, <laughs> next episode, Hollywood Monsters. Oh, oh it, God. Love. That's such a good joke. That's such a good joke. <laughs> right, on that note, I'll see you guys later. I love you both. I love you all for listening. Bye. Bye-bye. Michael, do you want to say bye? Bye. Oh, sorry, I forgot. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.